Well, I thought we would, I've already said this, but we would read the exercises for right speech. Then each of us could share something that, the, that either the exercise brought up or some experience we had speaking. Something I was thinking about last time and, and thinking during the week is uh, on a scale of zero to 10, what grade would I give myself you know, for a given conversation? And if you want to reveal that, I, I don't mind it revealing it. It's not an A plus, but I don't, you know, but if you want to do that, like, okay. So anyway, let's read. I'll share the, the uh, book. Can you see it? Oh, you're all muted. Yes. Yes, we can see it. Yes. Let, let, okay, Donna and Nancy are still muted. <coughs> oh, I see. Okay. There, not anymore. Kim, you want to read through the practices again? Yes. I thought they would bring up some um, stuff. Okay. So, um, just should I start since I'm letter A? You're the starter. And, uh, okay, great. Oh, wait, I'm looking at right action. Um, reflections and practices, right speech. Week one, the experience of speaking. One of the most challenging but also rewarding areas of mindfulness practice is mindful speech. If we tune into ourselves, we can experience the relationship speaking has to our bodies, our emotional lives, our beliefs and ideas, our preferences, and the way our life experiences have conditioned us. Please spend a week being mindful of these areas when you speak. It might be helpful to keep a journal recording what you notice. You might find the following sequence helpful. Um, day one, focus on noticing what is happening in your body as you speak. Day two, focus on how you feel emotionally when you speak. Day three, focus on noticing what motivates you to speak. Why do you say what you do? Day four, be mindful of what you are paying attention to when you speak. Are you focused on your words? Do you pay attention to the people you're talking to? How aware of your body are you when you speak? Day five, keep your attention anchored in your body as you speak. Notice how this affects what you say. Day six and seven, repeat some of the practices from the first five days. That's Donna. Am I next? <coughs> okay. Um, this week's honesty. This week's exploration of truthful speech has two parts, listening well and speaking honestly. Spend the first few days of this week devoted to listening to others more carefully than you usually do. How does this affect what you say? As you listen, notice what inner dialogue you might have. Are you rehearsing what you will say? Are you commenting on what you are hearing? Do you get easily distracted by unrelated thoughts? 
spend the rest of the week noticing what it's like to be honest and what it's like when you are anything less than honest. Perhaps in most conversations, this is not a particularly important issue because honesty is easy. However, what does it feel like when honesty is not so easy? Or when the honesty is an important part of the communication? What does it feel like when you are avoiding honest <coughs> communication? What motivates this avoidance? If you find yourself saying something that is not truthful, spend some time investigating why and how you did this. Find a person you can talk to about the role of honesty in conversation. You might ask them what they have learned in their life about speaking truthfully. Okay, so K, L, L, M, Matt. Oh, thank you. Social harm, week three, social harmony and speech. When the Buddha advised us to avoid slander speech, he also encouraged us to speak so we can unite those who are divided and encourage those who are united. During this week, give special attention to saying things that create social harmony and concord. Avoid speaking badly about anyone. Instead, look for natural and appropriate opportunities to speak well about others including the people you are with. Notice how you are affected by speaking in such ways. Motivations to speak. During this week, notice why you say what you say, what motivations are behind what you do and don't say. Notice the strength of your impulses to speak. What affects the strength of this impulse when you are mindful of the motivation and impulses to speak? How does this affect what you say? Should I finish it? Sure. When you know you will be speaking to someone, prepare yourself by reflecting on what intentions you might want for the conversation. How does the conversation unfold if you have reflected and set an intention beforehand? During some of the, your conversations this week, practice pausing and relaxing before you speak. Don't rush in to contribute to a conversation, after a moment to pause and relax before you speak. Notice how this affects what you say and how you say it. Choose some conversations during this week in which you can emphasize saying things that are pleasing, heartwarming, and meaningful for the people you are speaking with. Notice how this affects you. <coughs> okay. Okay. Who'd like to go first? Just anything about speaking in the last week or about these? I gotta say, I um, was at the Dharma talk on Sunday that Lori did, and then we practiced um, in breakout rooms, and that was a very, very kind of deliberate exercise and slowing down and then sharing how it felt. Well, you didn't have to slow down, but that was just what most people in our group did. And I found that really um, a beneficial exercise. I, some, some of you guys were also there on Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, did you find the same thing, that that was a useful exercise? Uh, well, for me, I just, I start practicing 
I just have today a conversation that was going more what I was feeling in my body. Uh, and that really was for me more truthful and more honest than going with what my mind thinks. It's just going like, and I was expressing this group, expressing how I was feeling in my body. Um, and that bring me really, I was feeling more comfortable when I was speaking out. Um, and it was no like trying to blame or trying to do fixing, it's just bringing up my feelings, my, not my feelings, my sensations in my body. You know? and, and for me, they give me a lot of data too from that conversation. So I really feeling more comfortable because uh, I, I don't have problem to speak out. I know it's more my language, like sometimes it's uh, put me a little behind to speak out more. Uh, uh, as I say on Sunday, for me, my practice was speaking slowly, helped me to be more aware how I'm speaking. I was in Sandra's group and it was so powerful to hear her. Uh, you know, I really sensed a change in Sandra. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really beautiful. Um, so I give myself a five, just generally, in terms of what it might be. And, and I just came from Costco um, because I had to get my hearing aids fixed. And I had a whole plan that while they were fixing them, I would go shopping. And they said, well, you know, because of COVID-19, you can't go shopping while we're fixing them, which of course made no sense, but it was a good um, uh, challenge here that they're talking about. I mean, almost like someone not speaking honestly when, when someone says something that doesn't make any sense, but you have to go along with it because you don't think it's worth it to, to say no. You're just appreciative that they're fixing it. And, and, um, and then some of the people remembered me from being there before and, you know, I said hi and stuff. But, um, oh, and then I just wanna say one more thing that, that um, the first semester I was teaching, it was a design class, I think. And um, I gave the students a project where they had to make something that they would give to someone that would embody who they are. The idea was they'd never get to talk to this person, but they could make this thing that told who they were. You know, so we have that kind of opportunity when we meet a stranger to tell them who we are with just a few words, like the way I could have responded to, um, you can't go shopping even though I know you were planning to do that. You know, th there's just such a range of ways we could respond. And I could have theoretically made that person's day or ruined their day by the way I responded. I mean, I was pretty neutral. I was saying, oh, all right. But, um, but I must have like conveyed. Oh, the other thing is, is I just became more and more aware during the week about how important was the right view and right, in, and right intention. That if my view was an intention was to really connect with people, it, it would be a different conversation. And I was kind of starting from the speech thing where I think it, I have to go back 
and really review. So what's my intention when I talk to a clerk at Central Market? You know, do I want to make their day? Do I want to uh, make a friend for life? Do I want to ruin their day? Kind of. So anyway, that's that's what I'm going to be working on. I think is is kind of reviewing that rather than what am I going to say? Okay, that's me. Uh, who's next? Yeah, for me, I just have uh, I think a couple of days. So the conversation is um, about one of my friends want to uh, come here uh, to stay with me uh, for a month because of some issue uh, with their um, life somehow that they cannot move in the, uh, the new place until October somehow. So my intention at first is to explore the situation, but I already have the, uh, the the answer is no, so yeah. After, <laughs> almost it go to an end. It's like I put the final um, decision this morning that no, and then uh, she convinced me uh, by saying because I listed one of the reason that you shouldn't come and stuff. But then she said, "I promise I will not go anywhere. I promise I will uh, be really careful while I." come and stuff like that and so yeah so and finally she said okay I will not come and then I mean the conversation went on and on and it's just like shift the whole thing opposite as I planned to <laughs> <laughs> so so after that I'm, okay I think I can say yes now <laughs> <laughs> So do, will we get to meet her? Uh, yeah, I think you may oh, in uh, September. Oh, good, good. Yeah. But so I feel that, I, I don't know, I feel um, somehow, do you think that I'm not like strict um, to the, the decision that I already made before starting the conversation? Should we have to, I mean, like, I, I don't know if it has anything with a motivations behind what I, yeah, I have the motivation to say no, but it's totally shift up to. It sounds like she addressed your concerns that you had, maybe, that you've, Maybe she addressed your concerns, and so there was maybe some list, maybe a way of listening on your part. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know, but that's just what it sounded like. Maybe. Yeah. Thank you. Also, she gave you a way out when she said, "No, I won't come." Sometimes then we're more likely to say yes. <laughs> yeah, I think you are right. <laughs> There's kind of less pressure. Okay, who's next? I think 
I may be the only one left. Has everyone spoken already? I don't think Donna has spoken. Oh, well, then I, I can wait. Donna, if you'd like to go first. And Matt hasn't either. And Matt oh, hasn't. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm distracted. Forgive me. I apologize. So who's right, going to talk? Oh, Matt, I guess I'll, you are. I'll go. <laughs> I'll go since uh, the other two are, were muted. Um, thank you, uh, Nelda. Um, let's see here. I, hmm. I just caught myself, I'm catching myself again. I'm gonna try to slow down. I'm try to slow down my speech. Um, there's, there's a lot to these practices. I feel like it could, um, they could, you could work with right speech for a long time. <laughs> um, and I appreciated last week us having a nice conversation about right speech because I was, I was at least trying to be a little bit more careful um, with with the words that I was using, and and I and and one but one of the things that I forgot, which the reading reminded me, was keeping your attention anchored in your body as you speak, and um, I really enjoyed that uh, that that idea, um, and want to practice that a little bit more. Um, so, I mean, I, yeah, I would say I, pro I, I probably give myself a five as well. I caught myself, it's, it's typical at the cabinet shop to talk trash about everyone else. <laughs> Just what everyone does. It's a pretty toxic thing. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities there for me to not only avoid speaking poorly about someone, but also help unite people who are maybe at odds with one another. Um, so, and I, and I, um, I find myself, I find it, I, fi I do, I do know specific instances where I find it difficult to be honest as well. Um, the two which come to mind have to do with, I think the power dynamics in the situation. Um, one is when my grandfather starts um, speaking race it, you know, is, starts talking politics. Um, and the other is when kind of like a superior of mine drives the, the work truck when we're delivering cabinets and he's, constantly bad-mouthing all of the drivers on the road and it's it's extremely irritating it's something that I want to I want to say something about it but I I, I want I, I also I haven't yet um, and and so um, and I think to, to Kim and Nancy's uh, point I, I appreciate the idea of focusing on intentions first um, see if anything even needs to be said or not. But, um, that's how it's hitting me. 
Yeah, it would get to hear in the future if you figure out how to do this. <laughs> yes. Okay, who's going to go next? Donna, you're unmuted. Yes, I'll go next. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I don't actually have that many conversations during, uh, during the past week. Um, but in one of them that I did, I, um, I guess I didn't think about it in terms of honest communication, <clears throat> but I think that's probably where it falls um, because I was asked, you know, how is so-and-so doing? And because uh, I was a little bit closer to so-and-so, but um, I realized that a lot of what I was saying was was speculation. And, you know, it wasn't like I was bad-mouthing or anything, but I couldn't, um, you know, it wasn't dishonest, but it wasn't exactly honest either since I didn't, you know, my there was a, a limit to what I knew. So um, I found myself um, thinking, hmm, how, <laughs> you know, just what, how does one, one deal with speculation and maybe we just don't speculate. Um, that might, that might be the path through all of this, but you know, we'll see. And since I didn't have that many conversations um, during the week, what I tended to end up listening to was, I guess you'd call them the inner conversations, the one I have, the ones I have with myself. And, um, you know, for the most part, you know, if, if we apply sort of this, these standards for talking with others uh, to talking to oneself, I didn't do too badly, but um, it really did for those times when I was starting to, you know, go off the uh, off the rails a little bit. Um, it really, you know, pulled me back from saying stuff about myself in a really interesting way. So that's that's the report from here. Yeah, I think that's a big one about um, people ask you something and you don't know the answer. You know, and you, you think you need to know the answer as opposed to saying, I don't know. Right, and, and to say that I don't know isn't exactly right either. I just don't know to the degree that they would like me to know. Um, and so I think it's the, that, that's probably a good way to look at it. You, you can go as far as you know and then you know, don't speculate. My father always knew the directions, even when he didn't. And, and my mom would, would start screaming at him. It's this way, it's this way, it's this way. Nelda. So I want to apologize for the distraction. I have two yapping doggies and I was so concerned about them interrupting the flow for everyone else that I was trying to catch a quiet moment <laughs> so that they wouldn't yap and they're quiet right now but I don't if you hear them and they're too loud so I don't 
I don't do scoring because I always like put it close to a zero. And, and um, the beauty of a zero is that, boy, does that highlight how many ways you have to improve. You can only go up from there. So that is a lovely thing to see um, how many ways I can go up. Um, I discovered a few things. And with regard to honesty, I discovered that... I am, there is this constant vibration of fear in being honest and trying to figure out the right ways to present my honesty in, in, in trying to modulate my tone because I have a tone issue. I, I've heard it from many people. So I, I'm good with that label. You know, it helps me try to tone down. I, I get very zenish when I'm with y'all, but out in the real world, my tone changes sometimes. So that was that was one thing that I was aware of, that there's this sort of constant undercurrent of fear of doing it, this incredible fear of wanting to do it right and be honest and not hurt someone with the way I present honesty, because I know that I appreciate honesty, but I heard something once that uh, people who love brutal honesty love the brutality more th than the honesty. And I thought that was so true. And so I've tried to sort of present honesty gently. Could, and could you say that again? People who love brutal honesty, brutal honesty, mm -hmm. love the brutality more than the honesty. Oh. And that, that really resonated with me because you know um so i've tried to work on that the 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 really disappointing moment actually happened yesterday um to see the extent to which i am controlling and prideful so there is a a friend in my life who i love and um we both have control issues we do and um, so we were going to meet for a short while yesterday. And this friend said, the intention we need to set for our meeting is and laid it out. <laughs> and so I thought, wait a minute, my intention is my intention. And I could have handled it so many different ways and said, all right, that's great. Thank you for coming up with an intention. And I just, so I... I tried to accommodate my, you know, ego at the same time as being honest and saying, what a beautiful, and it was, it was a beautiful intention. It just wasn't mine. And so, you know, I, when I came away from it, I, I felt like, oh, there's one more area where I need improvement. Because what I ended up doing was saying to this friend, what a beautiful intention. I love that. Now my intention will be, and so I presented my own. Why couldn't I just say, let's do that. Let's do that. And it has my, the only answer I could come up with was pridefulness and a sense, an ego based sense of self. Something so small. There was someone presenting something so beautiful but because I felt imposed upon or not consulted with, or, you know, however you want to put it, 
it all boils down to ego and pride. Um, I took a perfect moment and made it um, pretty human, you know, pretty in the world. So what a great lesson. Um, I just wish I had been more successful, but perhaps next time. So, so I've been, uh, when the Flint had these four photographers, well, himself and three others, each talking for an hour in the last um, month. And the last one was a National Geographic photographer. And he talked about how his, in his first meeting with his boss, his boss said, so we've hired you. I, I don't want you to prove yourself. You don't have to prove yourself you have to improve. And that's mm -hmm. kind of like what you said, Matt, isn't it something about improving? Matt, you're, you're uh, I was think, uh, I don't remember saying anything about it. Did someone say something about improving, Nancy, I, did you? I certainly need lots of improvement though. Oh. You know, it's funny, it's this whole, I, this whole construct of grading and improvement, I really feel like Especially with right speech, it is such a um, lifetime practice that it's, t to my mind, it's like I don't, I don't, I know I, I could grade myself or I could talk about improvement, but I just, I guess I want to be more spacious and kind to myself around the whole thing that I, that I, it's more of a. Well, that's important, isn't it? Well, for me it yeah. is, I guess, because yeah. I yeah. can go too easily the other way. So I, I, I guess it's, it's, I mean, anyway, it's just my take on it that it's like, um, instead of, yeah, putting it on a scale, I'm just like, well, yeah, I mean, you don't I've had hard, moments hard when yourself. I, well, or just, I just, yeah, t to my mind it's, anyway, for me personally, it's not as um, practical. I guess. Thank you for saying that. Anyone else? Anyone else? Are we done? Should we start yeah, what reading? You said is, uh, nice. oh, go on. Yeah. What you mentioned uh, was so nice. Yeah. Sometimes I, I want to show up as the, I'm the good speaker or something like that. But I think better to focus on improving than improve myself, right? Okay. So who, who read last? I think Nancy read last. So Sandra, and then we, no, no, uh, Nelda. Nelda, did we skip Nelda? It's Nelda's turn. Nelda and her dogs, okay. <laughs> and the yappers. You'll sound better if you unmute. <laughs> Thank you. Um, chapter seven, page 43, fourth factor, right action. There are, there are these five gifts, great gifts, primal, of long standing, traditional, ancient. What five? Abstaining from harming life, from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, from liquor, wine, and intoxicants that are the basis for heedlessness. The Buddha, Aguttara Nikaya, eight 
colon 38. The intention to avoid causing harm lies at the heart of the entire Eightfold Path. In fact, without it, there is no Eightfold Path. The practice of avoiding harm through our physical actions is the fourth path factor, right action. This factor is most commonly defined as not engaging in specific activities. The tasks of right action are to avoid three specific things. Number one, killing any sentient being. Number two, taking anything belonging to others that is not freely given. And number three, engaging in sexual misconduct. Practicing these three restraints can be inspiring when we can clear the safety and peace they create both for others and for ourselves. In a world where too many people are in danger of physical harm, practicing right action supports peace. The dedication to not killing can be interpreted more broadly, so it preculates causing any physical harm to others. This may well have been the Buddha's original intent because the word translated as killing, patipata, also means to attack and to injure. The avoidance of killing and injuring pertains, pertains to all conscious, breeding beings, not only other, other humans. It includes insects, pests, and the slaughters of animals for food. While the Buddha did not prescribe vegetarians, he forbade his monastic disciples from eating meat if the animal was killed specifically in order to feed them. Avoiding taking, taking what is not given is a higher standard than simply not stealing. It means we don't take, borrow, or use anything belonging to others unless it has been specifically offered to us. It also implies that we do not withhold items in our possession that rightfully belong to others. It includes cheating on one's taxes <clears throat> or using more natural resources like water, electricity, etc. that might reasonably be considered quote-unquote given freely. To refrain from sexual misconduct is to avoid any sexual activity with others that might cause harm. It means taking great care not to hurt our sexual partners. It also means respecting and upholding all relationship commitments that have been made, including those made by others. When we avoid injuring others, we also avoid injuring ourselves. When we practice right action, for example, we're less likely to have a painful conscience. In addition, the less harm we cause, the less likely it is that others will be angry with us or wish to retaliate with hurtful behaviors <coughs> toward us. Right action also prevents us from acting on our impulses of greed, hate, and delude or delusion. This, in turn, protects us from experiencing the negative consequences that come from acting on these underlying motivations. So I think the thing that Anne brought up is, is really a, a important point to me, 
um, you know, how, how do we take it upon ourselves when we're not, do, when we realize we haven't done right action or right speech or any, you know what I mean? So that this is not supposed to be like um, where you have to go and punish yourself or jump off a cliff. That's why I like the idea of focusing more on uh, improving and proving. That is a good point. I'm also wondering about, like, somewhere on on all of these these defilements, or they're not defilements. All of these, um, whatever they are, um, they. I mean, they're not all unwholesome, are they? I mean, I want to eat dinner, so does that make me greedy? And I, you know, I have, um, anyway, I'm just wondering if there's any room for, or like, I guess, well, sexual misconduct, that is very specific. But I mean, in the other part of the book, you talked about lust. I mean, is lust really necessarily a bad thing? I guess so. I mean, but then what is the foundation for relationship based on attraction? Is that a bad well, I, thing? Yeah, I think it's it's that deal about having preferences is fine, but not being attached to them. Okay, so you could have this preference of like, I am greedy for dinner, but if I'm not, a, what? How would that play out? I'm not attached to the outcome? Well, Well, I also think that I don't know if the if dinner is necessarily a good choice. Mm. You have to eat, right? You're, you aren't these, these aren't aesthetic practices. Yeah. I think if you you could probably eat too much, and that might not be quote unquote freely given. Mm. The way that I see it is about the eating a little bit. What I will extend what Matt said is that. Sometimes you listen to your body, you feel satisfied. Mm. But this other part, the IFS, you know, this other yeah. wants to keep eating, eating, even though you're not hungry. Yeah. And that's the greeting that is not that your body really needs, but it's just mm. this other part that is craving, is attached to that. Or what if it was like a situation where there were seven of us and there's only a fine, you know, certain amount of food. And so the, for, in order for everyone to get something to eat, we would be really deliberate of not being greedy and taking more than our share. Maybe that too, because that would also be involving thinking about others. Mm -hmm. oh, well. Anyway, thank you. Sorry. It, uh, it's my turn. Uh, is it my turn? Yes. I, 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 great. Thank you, Sandra. Mm -hmm. um, living without intentionally harming any living, living being is also a source of happiness called the bliss of blamelessness. This is an ease in the mind from being free of any reason to be reproached, either by oneself or by others. The absence of remorse, fear, and criticism is something to appreciate. It is a joy that can grow from reflection on a mind that has a clear conscience. 
a mind with a clear conscience is conducive for meditation practice. Mm. Hate is the common motivation for wanting to endure or cure. Greed is often the high stealing. Sexual misconduct can have a variety of motivations. In addition, killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct all attain a degree of delusion. In particular, the delusion of not recognizing the harmful consequences that can ensue. Greed, hate, and delusion may all be entangled with fear, and they arise sometimes as responses to fear. Right action is a way to help us limit the impact of these painful motivations. Because it can be easier to control our actions than to control our mind, the three abstinences of right action can be an effective way of preventing greed, hate, and delusion from controlling us. When any of these three are strong, not acting on them may require marshalling a matching degree of restraint, but it is worth it. Restraint as a form of right action keeps these impulses in check in such a way that mindfulness can then help us understand, resolve, and dissolve them from the inside without harming others or causing further harm to ourselves. In addition to these practices of restraint, right action also includes acting on the opposite motivations. Instead of greed, we can tap into our capacity for generosity. Instead of hate, we may cultivate love and respect for others. Instead of delusion, we might take time to pay more careful attention to the people and beings we encounter. Okay. We can be prompted to cultivate positive motivations when we encounter greed, hate, and delusion in ourselves. If we feel an urge to injure others, we can instead consider the situation through the perspective of compassion. The impulse to take what is not giving might instead prompt an exploration of contentment. Anytime there is a desire for a sexual relationship, it's probably a good time to ask if compassion and respect are adequate present. This is even more important when we are motivated to engage in sexual misconduct. That seems to be related to view and intention, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Some people prefer to emphasize the positive sides of right action what they can do rather than what they should avoid because they don't feel inspired by the avoidance of killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Sometimes people can feel burdened by the seemingly restrictive nature of these teachings. Even so, one advantage of the negative formulation of these practices is that it is often easier to determine which behaviors constitute non-injuring non-killing, non-stealing, or sexual misconduct than it is to decide how to be compassionate, generous, and respectful. Ideally, the negative and positive sides of right action work together. We restrain harmful actions. We have the opportunity to consider and cultivate behaviors that promote well-being for ourselves and others. For example, 
Practicing non-killing may help us cultivate a greater appreciation for life. Practicing non-stealing may help us cultivate respect for others. And practicing good mm -hmm. sexual conduct may help us cultivate trustworthiness. In addition, it is important to appreciate the tremendous value of looking deeply into the motivations and feelings <coughs> behind our actions. For practitioners on the Eightfold Path, right action provides an opportunity to bring great, greater mindfulness to the underlying causes of unskillful behavior. In this way, right action works together with the first two factors of the path, right view and right intention. Plus, it can be inspiring to know that practicing the Eightfold Path is a way to release ourselves from these underlying painful and potentially destructive roots of greed, hate, and delusion. Yeah, um, I like, I've got a kind of a quick question for the group. I, um, I, um, something I've been thinking about for a while in terms of greed and stealing, um, I, I work uh, on, a, an, on an hourly basis. So I'm paid by the hour or whatever. And no one's, I mean, there's a, a shop foreman, but things are pretty lax, especially around lunchtime where I could, if I wanted to, I could clock in and or clock out a little earlier or later, even work on my own projects while on the clock. And I've always kind of justified it because I see the owner of the cabinet shop and he's got properties and houses and he's super, just a rich capitalist Trump supporter. So maybe there's some hate in there as well and greed, but I, I kind of pushed the boundaries a little bit and I'm, and I appreciate this practice of non-stealing may help us cultivate respect for others. And maybe there's, um, um, cause I'm, yeah, I mean, everyone does it. Everyone kind of pads their timesheet a little bit, but, and I don't do it much, but I do do it. So, I just had to get that off my chest. Okay, here we go. Reflections and practices, right action. Week one, intentions for action. While you may rarely, if ever, act on intentions to cause harm, do you have thoughts, wishes, or impulses toward others that would cause harm if acted upon? Do you have impulses for revenge, retribution, or animosity toward others? Do you ever have thoughts or fantasies about taking things not given or taking more than is offered? Do you scheme about how you can get something before someone else gets it? Do you take advantage of people's time and goodwill? Do you have thoughts, fantasies, or desires for sexual relations with inappropriate people? During this week, 
be attentive to these kinds of intentions and thoughts? How often do you have them? In what circumstances have, are you most likely to have them? What attitudes do you have toward these intentions? Is there an underlying motivation, need, or personal situation that is fuel for these intentions? During this week, also spend some time putting yourself in other people's shoes, imagine yourself in their situation. How might this shift the intentions you have to others? This is a lot like the precepts, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, in the first step, Matt, in the precept for me, and I, you know, that we, I, it seems like we kept talking about was just noticing where you are with that precept. Mm. And there was a neat thing. Um, one of the rabbis was talking about the commandments, and it says it's not that we don't follow a certain commandment; we don't follow it yet. So, <laughs> I really like when he said that. I see, yeah. So you're at a different place than the person who doesn't think about um, padding their time. Right? Right, who just does it. Or I the person, yeah, or the person who, you know, comes late to Zazen or the person who you know, I mean, any of a million things. Right. There's a lot of ways we can be hard on ourselves, that's for sure. Yeah. And I think some, I think that's why the precepts are taught more as guidelines. And as Anne was saying, kind of with the, the long-term approach in mind versus strict rules because then the, the the tendency is to kind of self-flagellation and well that's the danger and and there was some author that peg was talking about that doesn't see these things as like a prescription for right behavior but rather the way that no, the noble ones behave i see it turns it the other way around because a lot of you know as Anne was was saying a lot of damage can really come from beating yourself up over this stuff. You know those, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Kim, I didn't know you weren't quite done. What was the oh. last part? I don't remember that. I said a lot sorry. of damage can come from this. Um, okay, go on. Well, what you were saying uh, um, from some reading that Peg had about that, oh, well, these were the conditions for the monks. This is no, this is how the noble ones behave. Noble ones behave. Yeah. Okay, that's different. Yeah, this isn't a prescription. Yeah. It's a, it's a more of a description. Yeah, okay. And all we can do, like we did with the precepts was you know, the first step is just becoming aware. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, the next time I go to Costco to the hearing aid people, I'm just going to be a little more aware how I'm being with them, what kind of connection. They're cool people. And, and you know, one time I said something, 
oh, it doesn't matter. But I said something and my brother-in-law pointed out, well, that wasn't the nicest thing you could have said. I can't remember what it was. It was some, she, it was something about the, the, the grammar and the questions she asked me. <laughs> or something, you know, but, but he was right. And so that's like the same thing that Matt was talking about. So you become aware of this, just like you're aware of the, you know, when you're driving with this guy, you're aware of his speech and how he's, he's criticizing all the drivers. And you're aware of yourself not saying anything where maybe there is a possibility you could say something. And then what's the next step? Right. Yeah, and talking about stealing remind me like sometimes we, uh, I mean, I printed something outside work using the printer at, <laughs> yeah, and paper and ink too, <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> as as yeah. we were talking about, uh, um, at the Chand, I don't know this firsthand, I just heard about this, but the, the Chand Temple in St. Louis, the nuns um, have a bucket when they're taking a shower. So until the water heats up, they're saving all the water for the garden. <laughs> I actually have a friend who does that because their water, she's pretty far from the, the shower is really far from the water heater. So she feels like it's just like, I don't even know how much, but yeah, so she, I have a friend who does that. And then she goes out and waters her house plants. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But is it safe for the plants? Because we're using soap, right? Well, it's not, but it's before the soap. It's before she gets in the shower, she lets it run until it gets warm. Because oh. when it first turns on, it's cold. It takes a long time for the water to warm up. So she she puts a bucket or something in, and but I thought Kim was going to say something about like the soapy water and that these nuns were like taking it and I don't know somehow reusing it or something. But I guess that would be gray water. So anyway, uh, yeah. Are we on? What are we? Where are we? We're on week two, page fifty at the top. Not killing or harming. Yep, I think Nell does up. Well, I want to say three little things that to me are important. I hope they have, they feed someone. I loved the precepts class um, this year because I had never thought of a, a vow as an aspirational goal. I always thought of it as sort of a law breaking, you know, you broke a vow. And so there's retribution or punishment or consequences for that. So yes, Kim, I love, I love the precepts class and the way it's presented in the different books. And uh, lest you think I am hard on myself for, for calling my week a zero, one little sort of mantra or thought that I hold all of the time is that anytime I'm hard on me or others, I put poison into the cosmic waters and that to me is is just awful the thought that i am releasing a poison by my self-flagellation that i won't even do it to myself and i hope to do it less to others um like in the example i gave of not just letting my friends set that that meditation and you know at my age and at this time of day i forgot number three so it mustn't have been that important <laughs> maybe number three is okay i'll read page 50 
week two, not killing or harming. Um, do you have exceptions to the precept of not killing? Do you have justifications or rationales for when it's okay to kill people, animals, or pests? What are these justifications? In what situations are you committed to not killing or not injuring other people or non-human beings? What motivates this commitment? Also, how does it benefit you and your Buddhist or mindfulness practice to be committed to not killing? Are there ways you can expand on this commitment? For the Buddha, having compassion for all beings is the alternative to killing or harming. During this week, find ways to increase the compassion you feel toward others. You might read my article, Cultivating Compassion, which can be found on the articles page of IMC's website, insightmeditationcenter.org. Can, can, I was just going to say, Kim and I have an ongoing discussion about rats. Rats? Uh-huh. And why it's okay to kill them, I guess. But then by what means? And I, It's a, just with the pest thing. Yeah, and I had the rat guy come on Friday and put new poison in after a year. Uh, you're oh. killing the rats. Oh. But he's killing him with poison that they yeah. gets into owls and stuff. No, 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 no. He insists that it doesn't. They are beings, Kim. Well, I, I killed the mosquitoes. Don't I? I, <laughs> I killed a giant roach yesterday. I felt kind of bad. <laughs> I killed the mosquitoes because they bite me and leave me very bad uh, rash. And there are situations where we have have to kill. I can think of two recent ones. I got um, some uh, um, cicada wasps in my yard, like hundreds of them. And I didn't know anything about them. And the little boy who used to live next door is uh, deathly allergic to wasps. And so I called out the pest control because I, I just, I didn't want him to get bitten. And I the other situation was I had a rescue pit bull who who's passed away. Um, he's um, he's in another state of being right now. But um, when I got him, he was so debilitated. His heart was so damaged from heartworm that the vet told me that he didn't have long to live. And you know, just love him until he he dies. And when um, Hurricane Harvey hit. Um, the waters so soaked my lot that the, the little tiny ants were coming into my house by the thousands through the light sockets, through the, uh, the plugs, to under the doors. I mean, it was like a blanket of them. And so I had to weigh it. It's like Peg says, if you think you can get out of this world without doing harm, you are, very na you are naive. <laughs> and so it was this balancing of who, 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 who can I let live? You know, my doggy or or these ants and those poor ants, you know, I pour water on them to drown them saying, I'm so sorry. I know your life is a full life, just like Charlie's, just like mine, but I'm so sorry. And I had to kill ants and it killed me to kill ants, but we have to choose sometimes. 
I think I like the way he say uh, in one of the paragraphs that we talked that said the Buddha, if you you kill an animal because uh, when you want to eat, just not because of the greeting or no harmful. I think that's for me, I understand this. We cannot prevent to kill like, for example, the mosquitoes for me. It's not I doing on purpose. I have this want to kill them is I kill them if no I want to have some reaction in my skin so I think it's seeing that I really like that paragraph like thinking in that for me like it's uh, like it, it is not like I want to kill it because I feel good to do that right so like the action our love and compassion yes exactly being. yes yes Okay, um, should I continue? Sure. Okay, week three, not talking what is not giving. I'm oh, sorry, not taking what is not giving. Are there things you take that they are not giving? Do you help yourself to things and all free time of the world that have not been offered? Are there situations in your life where you exert inappropriate authority over others? force people to do things that they don't want or take more of their time that they have offered? Are there any even subtle areas where you are liable to take what has not been given? Spend some time reflecting on all of those questions. What motivates them? What beliefs support them? How often do you engage in these behaviors because you are feeling lazy or unwilling to spend the time to do the right thing? How does not taking what is not giving apply to your use of natural resources? Are such natural resources you use like water, energy, or various sources, or the sources materials for the goods you use freely giving? Are they freely giving in unlimited supply? Do you believe these are giving because we can buy them? Spend two days this week reflecting on the precepts of taking what is not giving. Then spend two, two more days practicing not taking what is not giving and truly as you possible can. You might go as far as some Buddhist monastics do who will will not pick up a book on someone's coffee table unless there is a clear invitation to do so. Don't force yourself forward in traffic. If you need something and it's not offered, ask for or examine, examine it, examine it whatever, whether you really need it. For the next two days, focus on practicing generosity. Look for opportunities to give things, time, compliments, the benefit of the doubt and other acts of kindness. At the end of the week, review and compare the practice of abstaining from taking what is not giving with the practice of generosity. How were the challenge and benefits similar or different? Um, week four, not engaging in sexual misconduct. One way or another, sexual desire and expression are part of everyone's life, at the very least in continuing with 
social expectations around sexuality. It is well worth reflecting deeply about our own relationship to our sexuality. The questions that follow are meant for your own private reflections, you guys. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to hear this. Keep them to yourself. What role of influence does sexual desire have in your life? I have an answer. <laughs> Matt, we can't hear it. <laughs> Is the influence beneficial for you? In the context of right action, are you comfortable with your sexuality? If not, what would it take to become comfortable with it? What is your understanding of sexual misconduct? Are there forms of thinking, fantasizing, and solitary activities that you engage in that involve sexual misconduct? If you are involved with any of these, what might be satisfying and realistic ways of substituting appropriate sexual context, conduct for them? During this week, spend some time bringing a heightened sense of respect to the person or people you have sexual feelings or thoughts about. Devote time, perhaps two sessions of meditation, to practicing loving kindness toward them. What effect does this respect and loving kindness have on your sexual desires and thoughts? Um, with, I'm not going to talk about my private reflections. But I will say it's interesting because it is such a gamut. There's just such a gamut out there of what this could encompass. For a given person or for the whole range People. of humanity? Yeah, for humanity. Yeah, I just learned about a grade school classmate who did some very unfortunate things and um, is now in jail. Or prison or whatever but anyway um, anyway so just like there's this whole gamut of stuff that can happen and exists out there in this realm hmm. you know there's a stuff that's against the law like that but there's also just the stuff that the subtle ways that we can um, not be the best person So uh, do you, we could uh, stop now, or we could uh, look at this article, Cultivating Compassion. Yeah, I think we can look at it. This is yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's long, short. I haven't looked at it. I like that idea of looking at that article. Do you want me to, did, are you looking for it, Kim? Yeah, I'm pulling it oh, up. Oh, there it is, or there's the website. Okay. It's not that easy to find then. Uh, I guess that's under articles. Cultivating compassion. There's, I don't see an article section. Well, th oh, these are talks. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, so. He said it was in the articles. Here, let me search for it. Okay. like a good website mm -hmm. and there we oh, go there it is hey. oh it's not long oh, it's yeah. hello it's good perfect how's the can size you make it bigger? can you make it bigger yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it's... how's that 
better. A little bit more, please. Yeah, a little bit yeah. more would be better. More still? A little well, bit. No, I think it's better. That's good. That's okay. good. Okay. Whose turn is it? I think it's, it's mine. Yeah, I think it's Don, Donna. Yeah, I think it's your turn because I just went. Um, cultivating Compassion by Gil Fransdahl. Compassion is inextricably linked to the Buddhist practice of liberation. It can be the motivation for this practice as well as the result. As one's inner freedom grows, one's capacity for compassion increases. As one comp one's compassion increases, so does the importance of freedom. Liberation supports compassion and compassion supports liberation. They both benefit when they go hand in hand. Now, Nelda, I was just had a thought about your situation with your friend who came up with this intention. So, so one way of looking at it is, is um, why didn't she ask me, right? Why? And then the other way is, is, oh, if I had compassion for her, what might I do to, you know, really make this a special thing for her? You know, right. saying, thank you, that's so neat that you did that for me. Right. You're right. Okay. Okay, so uh, where are we? Who's reading? You. Compassion is a form of empathy and care that wishes for the alleviation of someone's suffering. Known as Karuna in Buddhism, this compassion is sometimes referred to as the jewel in the lotus. The lotus symbolizes the heart or mind that with practice blossoms into freedom and the jewel represents the compassion appearing in the center of the blossom. So wouldn't that be cool to go to Costco and be, be the, the jewel in the lotus, you know, for the day for that person. And there was, a, I don't know if I mentioned this to this group, but there was a um, woman at the optician who, uh, Linda and I started talking to her and she reached into her purse and she had these um, thank you plastic gold coins. And she said, she said <laughs> Sorry. you guys have been so nice to me, you know, here, take these gold coins and give them to someone else who's been nice to you. You what gave you? one to me, Kim. Oh, I did. <laughs> yeah. That was like, now I know where he's from. Somebody in the Costco optical department. <laughs> no, no, no. That wasn't Costco. That was that, that was our optician. Okay. That was like two or three years ago, right? Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. How cool. Okay. So where am I? <laughs> Did I finish the paragraph? Um, yeah. I mean, can I just ask, since we're pausing anyway, yeah. what was that other word that... Um, Peg mentioned is really the other word, the other um, Sanskrit word for compassion that we should be kind of thinking about. Um, oh, do you guys know. remember that? Pretty recently, within the last few months. Oh well, I, I don't remember exactly, so I, I I don't have anything to say about it. So. I mean, I remember there was a word, but I don't remember what it is. Okay, did I finish the paragraph? 
the heart and, or mind that with practice blossoms into freedom and the jewel represents the compassion appearing in the center of the blossom. The feeling of unfettered compassion is one of the most beautiful things a person can experience, providing valuable meaning and purpose to any human life. Its presence is sometimes celebrated in Buddhism as an inner wealth or, and source of happiness. Given its importance, Buddhism doesn't have the manifestation of compassion, doesn't leave the manifestation of compassion to chance. We don't have to passively accept how often and how strongly we happen to experience it. Instead, it's possible to actively develop our feelings of compassion and remove the obstacles for our feeling compassionate. Because people sometimes confuse compassion with feelings of distress, it is helpful to glad to clearly distinguish these two, compassion doesn't make us victims of suffering, whereas feeling distress on another's behalf often does. Learning how to see the suffering in the world without taking it on personally is very important. When we take it personally, it is easy to become depressed or burdened. We can avoid taking it as a personal burden or obligation if we learn to feel empathy without it touching our own fears, attachment, and perhaps unresolved grief. This, thank you. This means that to feel greater compassion for others, we need to understand our own suffering. Mindfulness practice is a great help in this. With mindfulness, we can better see our suffering, its roots within us, and the way to freedom from suffering. We can begin to cultivate cultivate both equanimity toward our suffering and release from its causes. Do I, I like the part, the part that she said, they say the cultivating equanimity towards suffering release causes. Mm. Mm. In this regard, it's helpful to appreciate the great value in staying present, open and mindful of suffering, both our own and that of others. We often need to give ourselves time to process difficult events and experiences and to let difficult emotions move through us. When immediate action is not required, staying mindful of suffering doesn't necessarily require a lot of wisdom or special techniques. It mostly takes patience and perseverance, perseverance relaxed mindfulness of all of our own suffering increases our ability to feel empathy for others' difficulty and pain, gives time for understanding and letting go to occur. By practicing to be free of habitual reactivity, we take the time to see and feel more deeply what is happening. This allows empathy to operate and for deeper responses to arise from within. In this way, compassion is evolved rather than intentionally created. I like that paragraph. Mm -hmm. Kim, can you scroll up? Thank you. Some people are reluctant to actively cultivate compassion because they worry that it will be insincerely or artificially contrived. Others fear that it will make them sentimentally naive or prevent them from seeing others clearly or realistically, perhaps out of concern that they will be taken advantage of if they are compassionate to others. 
Because efforts to be compassionate can be misguided, these concerns are worth keeping in mind. However, as there are healthy ways to increase our compassion, the concerns don't have to inhibit our efforts to do so. One effective way of developing compassion is creating conditions that make it more likely to occur. That is, rather than directly making ourselves more compassionate, we can engage in activities that make it more likely to appear naturally. A condition for compassion is a sense of safety. It is easier to feel compassionate if we feel safe <coughs> and very difficult when we don't. Therefore, to develop a confident and compassionate life, it can be helpful to find appropriate ways to feel safe. Locking ourselves in our home may feel secure, but it's not conducive to caring more about others. Learning how to be safe while in the world is more useful. So is using mindfulness practice to address some of the anxieties and self-preoccupations that make us more likely to feel through? Oh, so is using mindfulness practice to address some of the anxieties and self-preoccupations that make us more likely to feel threatened. It is important not to feel obligated to be compassionate, as this often leads to self-criticism and stress that interferes with the arising of a natural compassion. Buddhism doesn't require us to feel empathy and care for others. It does say, however, that we have the capacity to, can be, to be compassionate and that doing so is a wonderful asset to ourselves, to others, and to the practice of freedom. Focus can be on how compassion enriches us, not depletes us. Some people are hesitant to cultivate compassion because they worry they will have to give up too much of themselves as they have others or they fear that they have to spend time with people they feel uncomfortable with. By knowing we are not obligated to be compassionate, it may be easier for us to see our, to use our best wisdom and common sense to understand when acting on compassion is appropriate and when it is not. Well, that's a difficult one. When, exactly. <laughs> when would it not be appropriate to be compassionate? And maybe well, that's, I, go on. I think it's the two sentences right above. Um, people are hesitant to be compassionate because they don't want to give up too much of themselves. And they don't want to spend time, you know, they don't want to be compassionate with someone they don't feel comfortable with. Or they spill, they, you know, they, they want to, you know, I, I can kind of think of scenarios there. Well, in the six uh, perfections, there's a deal about uh, the, the Richard Wright or whatever his name is, um, about tolerance that sometimes it's appropriate not to be tolerant mm. when your friend is getting beat up on. So maybe that's a time when you shouldn't be compassionate you, because you need to protect the person. Well, I'm gonna interject here because that's exactly the situation with this friend who's um, intention I didn't want to adopt and maybe it's not exactly the situation. My wonderful friend who I love has a tendency 
to um, dictate how things will be done for everyone and leaves very little room for input, whether on a, you know, two by two or group, it's sort of her way or the highway. And the lovely thing about being from the South is that she can put it in this most sugary sweet tone, but it's still this, you know, controlling everyone's, um, and I think in that moment, what I was feeling and why I answered, no, I know what I was feeling that moment. I couldn't fully, as beautiful as her intention as the way she expressed it was, I could not fully connect with it. I was in a different place. And so it felt dishonest to accept it. Now, maybe if I had said, yeah, let's, let's do that, that the words that, that sitting in that would have brought that sense of the words she used to me. But in that moment when she presented it, I wasn't in that space and it felt dishonest to agree to something where I wasn't in that space. I think that that's the same situation I was in in Costco with where there was a surprise factor where I had this whole plan that I was going to give them the hearing aids and go shopping and, and then they said, no, you can't do that. You know, so then you have to like recalculate. Yeah. And so do you, do you hold your tongue and not be honest and say, that's beautiful, but I'm not in that. Maybe I should have said that. I'm not in that space right now. I wish I was. So here's, here's, here's the best I can bring in this moment. And that's the deal about safety. Like if you really felt safe with her, maybe you could say that. Yeah. Oh, I had this plan that I was going to work with you and we were going to come up with an intention or something. Yeah. Of course, I could get lots of other chances, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't have said that to the woman at Costco. Well, can we reevaluate this role you have? <laughs> and don't you find sometimes it's like the understanding of it sometimes makes the difference? Like when you like, like I see about what a silly rule that I thought, well, maybe it's because they have to like disinfect the area after every hearing aid client. Mm. So if you get up and go shopping and then come back and then they've got to like duplicate their work and but who knows? I don't know if that's the reason or not. I, I think there was I something. Mean, sometimes for me, not having that understanding helps me feel more compassionate. I think there was something about uh, they could keep things cleaner that way having one customer at a time. Okay, it's 8.30. Should we stop or should we finish reading this? How many more paragraphs? I can uh, stay, but I don't know if everyone can. I think it's quite a few, isn't it? Or yeah. is it three? It's a little few. Yeah, I need to yeah. be. Yeah, I should. Okay. I probably need to leave too. I, I, I promised someone I'd call them at eight thirty. Okay. What is eight thirty? Yeah. So anyway, tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, Wednesday night. Lori is leading koan mm. practice. Oh boy. That will be fun. So that she's the one I have to call if you wanted to know how we do that. Mm. I'm confused, Kim. This koan practice? I mean, this Monday no. night? No. Uh, on Wednesday nights, we do a different kind of meditation okay. every every week. And this week, it's koan practice. Okay. 
It's my favorite. Mm -hmm. Thank Bye. you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 B